I'm really excited to be joined by Ralph Carhart, who wrote a very interesting book called The Hall Ball, One Fan's Journey to, to Unite Cooperstown Immortals with a Single Baseball. Ralph is a Brooklyn-based baseball historian and an active member of the Society for American Baseball Research. He is actually the head of Sabre's 19th century baseball grave marker project. We are definitely going to need to speak to him about that as well. Ralph, thank you so much for joining me right here on BT Talks Baseball. Thanks for having me. It's great to be able to talk to you tonight. I am looking forward to it. And before we get started, um, I really want to uh, read a, a, a brief description of the book uh, to, so my listeners understand, because uh, it's, it's a really a fascinating premise. And it reads, rescued in 2010 from the small creek that runs next to Doubleday Field in Cooperstown, a simple baseball launched an epic quest that spanned the United States and beyond. For eight years, quote, the whole ball went on the journey to have its picture taken with every member of Baseball's Hall of Fame, both living and deceased. The goal was to enshrine the first crowdsourced artifact ever donated to the hall. It's part travelogue, part baseball history, part photo journal, and the book tells the full story for the, for the first time. The narratives accompany the ball's odyssey are as funny as they are moving as any in the history of the game. Ralph, what on earth made you finding a wet baseball lead you on this quest? Um, it, it was a, con a confluence of a number of factors, um, but the, the thing that sort of began it all is that my wife and I are amateur genealogists. And um, anyone who, who studies family history at all or genealogy at all knows that that means that you'll, you'll end up spending an inordinate amount of time uh, in cemeteries uh, doing your research. So it was one day while visiting a cemetery in Cooperstown uh, that I began to wonder what it would take to go and visit all of the graves of the members of the Baseball Hall of Fame. Um, and, uh, that was the first piece, uh, I added, uh, as I got going, as I, as I started the project, I decided, um, to why limit it to just the dead guys? Why not try and include the living guys as well? Um, so I decided I was going to take this one baseball that we had found on that same trip that we visited the cemetery, uh, around to, um, all of the living guys, as well as all of the graves, um, of all of the members. And I, I took a picture of the ball either in their hands, or if they're not with us anymore, the ball at the, the site where they were buried. You know, it's really, it's very interesting because it, the interesting part of what you just said, I think, is that you decided to start with the deceased players and, and then <laughs> yeah. move on to the living players. Uh, right. So, and, and, you know, I, when I read this book, two very specific things jumped out at me, and I, I guess we should take them one at a time. But the, the book is as much about the journey as it is about the people you spoke to and the graves you visited. Um, the journey seemed to be the most profound part of this book. Can you talk about where it led you and, and some of the best parts of it? Um, I mean, it led me to 34 states, uh, the U.S. territory of Puerto Rico and to Cuba, because uh, there are um, three members of the Baseball Hall of Fame who are buried in Cuba. Um, but, but it also led me somewhere else entirely. When I began the project, I was um, a fan who had some knowledge of baseball history. You know, I, I knew enough to know that Abner Doubleday didn't invent baseball, right? Um, but uh, over the course of going on this journey of, of discovering all of these players, and, and that's, you know, that's part of, the, part of what people don't necessarily think of right off the bat because 
when you think of the Hall of Fame, you are thinking of the most famous of, of all the ballplayers, right? Sure. Uh, and you'll immediately think of names like Babe Ruth and Ty Cobb and Ted Williams and Joe DiMaggio. Um, but there's 323. Well, when I finished the project, there was 323. I think there were about 330 at this point. Um, but there's there were you know over 300 players in the Hall of Fame. And you could ask the most ardent baseball fan that's out there to name them. And you would be – most people would be hard-pressed to name 50 or 100, you know? Um, there's a lot of guys who are in the Hall who – were famous in their time, but have sort of been lost a little bit to history. And that was that was also part of the goal for me was to sort of bring these lesser known greats to the forefront to make them part of the story, too. And, and what ended up happening in my research of who these people were is, you know, every time I went and visited a grave, I, I looked into who that person was and what they contributed to the game. Um, I, I'm really at a point now where I do consider myself to be um, a baseball historian. I guess I even get to use that that title now because occasionally people actually pay me to talk about it. So, you know, I, I guess we'll call it a pro. Um, but, but it, it changed my whole relationship with baseball tremendously. Um, it, it's less of a hobby now and more of a, of a passion. I can um, relate to the fascination with the, with the cemeteries and, and the graves. There's a happens to be two different cemeteries in Port Jervis in upstate New York, which uh, not do anything with baseball, but I happen to be uh, a little obsessed with. One is uh, because if you walk through it or drive through it and then walk down a little ravine, you end up at a tri-state rock, which is a, a rock that lies in, in three different states at the same time. Oh. And there's another, there's another one uh, where you walk up a hill and there's these great graves with like little photos of the people from, from different wars that fought soldiers. So uh, I can certainly relate, is, and I think some would find it morbid, but I actually think it's, it's more what you said, it's history. And can you talk a little bit about, because I mean, you have the photos in the book are phenomenal. And, and I think that's, you know, part of the, 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 the real charm of the book is the photos with the grave markers uh, for the deceased players and, and how you um, kind of present differently, you know, the, where the ball is. And, and I think, you know, obviously the ball was a, was a vehicle to take you on this journey, but it's more about the people you went to, well, not, not went to see, but... Uh, <laughs> I, I, I get what you mean. I get the, what you mean. The name. <laughs> but, but, but how much, uh, I guess, if, if you have... Well, I, I'm going to ask you two, a two-part question. First of all, how much do those players come to life when you're at their graves? And, and two, not literally, um, and, and two, were there any that uh, it caught you by surprise how you felt when you were there? Um, there was definitely a connection that um, I made. It's uh, um, th There's something special about standing next to a place where um, someone's body is spending eternity. Now, you know, there's, it, it is just a body, right? Like that's human beings are so much more than just their, their physical creation. And, and when you're at a grave, you're only, you know, there's really only a small piece of their, of, of that essence that's present. Um, but there is still something um, magical about being in that place, especially for folks like, you know, Lou Gehrig or, or, or graves where, you know, um, that there are people who come there with regularity um, with this uh, uh, aura, with this with this sense of the sacred, um, that really does make it something special. You know, it, it wasn't like at any point I felt like I was communing with the dead or anything like that. It's nothing quite so fantastical. But there were definitely times in which it was very, very touching. Uh, and and one of those moments, um, you know, the one that will always stand out the most to me is is one of the ones in Cuba. 
uh, when I got to go to the grave of Martin Diego, uh, that great multi-talented, multi-position uh, um, player, some, uh, most likely the, the most talented Cuban to ever play baseball. Um, and he's buried in this very remote town in Cuba called Cruces. And I had the very good fortune of being able to go and visit his grave with his son, Martin Jr. And um, Martin Jr., who just passed away himself last year, uh, looked so much like his father. He was he was one of those photocopies of his of his dad. And so there really was something profound being in this place with Martin's son and and you know the remoteness of it all and and what I had to do to get there you know it's not easy as a as an american to make that trip down to cuba there's hoops that have to be jumped through so it it was you know it was one that i definitely earned to get to um and and the experience was worth every bit of it um because it was um it was something profound it really was something special um, what was most surprising to me early on, like I, I learned soon enough, um, once I, I did enough of these, that um, that this was not uncommon. But what was surprising to me is how often um, their graves made no mention of their baseball careers. Um, some of them did. Uh, more often, if they were a, a military veteran, they were more often to mention their military service than their baseball service. Um, but some of them had nothing on them at all, just a name. And, and there were even some at the very beginning of the project where there were no grave stones whatsoever, no grave markers whatsoever, um, because, uh, you know, in particular players from the Negro leagues, um, who died, um, without really the means or the family to be able to, to make that kind of thing happen. So to, you know, to, to have that experience where you're looking at people who are in the baseball hall of fame, right? Like this is the cream of the crop. These are the people that our stories and our myths and our legends are written about. And yet for some of them, they were lying under earth with no recognition that they were there. Uh, and that was, uh, that was a profound experience in and of itself to, to understand uh, how we live in the society with these dual ideas of fame, the idea of, of a name that lives forever. And at the same time, um, these people who were who were forgotten. I think uh, we definitely need to shift to some of the living people you actually spoke to. Well, <laughs> what, what was that like to, uh, to to meet so many Hall of Famers and and who who caught you um, or I guess uh, who was most enjoyable along the way and who who got a kick out of it? Um. It, it was a, an incredible experience adding them on to the project. When I when I added that element to it, it definitely changed um, the whole experience for me. Getting to meet the living Hall of Famers um, ran the the gamut of experiences. There were times in which it was it was absolutely thrilling, uh, and then there were times in which the experience was a little bit miserable. Not every player was super keen on it. Um, there were lots of times where I had to wait hours and hours to get access to the players. There was a lot of, you know, just sitting there being bored over the course of this. Um, so, you know, there, it, it, the experiences ran to both ends. Um, the one that I will always come back to um, that was perhaps the most rewarding was Ernie Banks. Um, most of the interactions with the living guys lasted less than 30 seconds. I gave them my elevator pitch of what I was doing. They took the ball. I took my picture and I moved on. Um, but when I told Ernie the story, he wanted me to sit down and tell him more. And I actually got a good five, 10 minutes just talking baseball with 
Ernie Banks, which is, you know, I mean, <laughs> I might as well just stop, have stopped right there. Like there, it, it would have been extraordinarily, extraordinarily difficult for any experience um, to supersede that. It was, it was incredible to have a chance to do that and to have him, you know, take the project seriously because it is weird, right? Like I get that. I get that what I did was unusual and, and strange. Um, so for some of the players, the, the oddity of it um, sort of caused them to put their guard up with me. Um, but Ernie was the exact opposite. Ernie just opened up and realized that he was meeting this person who loved baseball so much that he was willing to go on this strange little quest, uh, and, and he wanted to talk to me about that. That, um, that, was, that was a hell of a thing. I think it probably would have been really just much more unusual and strange had you not written the book. <laughs> you just just gone on the journey. <laughs> sure. Ralph, it, it, this, this, this journey took you eight years. What kept you going? Was there ever a point where you, you said to yourself, uh, I might not make it, this might not come to be? Um, I mean, was there ever doubt or were you always very confident that you would take as long as you needed to to get this done? Um, there were probably, there were individual moments where I questioned why I was doing it, but I don't know if there was ever a moment where I said to myself that I was just going to stop. Um, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate in that I live in New York city and because of, um, you know, the, the fact that so much of the baseball hall of fame, uh, so many of the members of the baseball hall of fame are from the earliest days of baseball. If you look at the percentages of modern players who were inducted versus the old time guys, old time guys had a much easier time getting in than the modern guys did. And those old time guys lived on the East coast. They lived in New York and they lived in Pennsylvania. Um, you know, so I, I, I was within very close range of a very large percentage of them right from the outset. Uh, you know, I got the first hundred of the 300 done in, in less than a year just by driving within, you know, a couple of hours of my home. And because I was able to accomplish so much so quickly, uh, there was never really a point where I felt like it was just too much and I wasn't going to do it. There were, there were times in which, you know, especially towards the end where I was, I, I was glad it was ending. You know, in theory, this is a project that I could have just kept doing in perpetuity. They elect new Hall of Famers every year, and I could have just kept adding new guys forever and ever. Um, but I, I, I didn't want to. I wanted it to have a, a finite finishing point. I wanted to write the book, and I needed to finish it to do that. Um, and I didn't want to, you know, sit around backstage at baseball card shows for hours anymore. Um, so there, there was a point towards the end where I was glad that it was ending. Um, but I, in that process, over those eight years, um, I, I don't know if there was ever a point where I didn't think I would get it done. Um, I have an extraordinarily supportive family, which also made it, you know, possible for me to never doubt. Um, you know, my wife in particular um, was super patient with how many of our family vacations were dictated around where some dead ball player was buried. Um, so it, it was because I had their support and because um, I did have that really great, you know, head start. Um, I, I always knew I was going to get this done. I didn't know how long it would take necessarily, uh, but I knew I was going to get it done. The book is The Hall Ball, One Fan's Journey to Unite Cooperstown Immortals with a Single Baseball. The author is Ralph Carhart. Ralph, thank you so much for joining me tonight right here on BT Talks Baseball. It was great talking.